Good morning, everyone. Good to see all of you. Am I on? There we go. Okay. Father, we thank you for your word, and I thank you for this wonderful insight we're given into your son, our Savior, one of the most unique moments, I believe, in, in Scripture regarding Christ's tenderness and his gentleness. Um, really only two, two accounts of him crying in the Gospels, the other at Lazarus's tomb, and then this one as he weeps over Jerusalem, Lord. And so I, I do pray that you would use this powerfully to give us revelation of Christ, appreciation for him, for his uh, loving heart, his view of, of judgment. We recognize his justice. We recognize that you unleash your wrath against sin. But we also recognize that there is a, a compassion and I don't, towards sinners and regarding judgment, and I don't know if it's shown any better than in this account, Lord. And so by your grace, I pray that I would do justice to it, that you'd use me as your vessel this morning for your glory and for our faith and affection for Christ to grow. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Good to see all of you. The title of this morning's sermon is Why Jesus Weeps Over Jerusalem. Why Jesus Weeps Over Jerusalem. So on Sunday mornings, we're working our way verse by verse through Luke's gospel, and we find ourselves at Luke 19, 41. You might remember last Sunday's sermon laid the foundation for this sermon. And before I forget, I had talked about how Thanksgiving uh, is done in the fellowship hall, or we have Thanksgiving in the fellowship hall, and then families that would like to join us can have Thanksgiving with us there. But we hadn't received much response, which is fine, because I suspect that simply means that other people have plans with their families and friends. Uh, so we were going to have Thanksgiving at home, but then I heard some people were still planning on coming to the church. So all that to say, if you want to join us for Thanksgiving, let us know so that we can tell whether we should have it at our, we have room in our house or whether we should uh, return to the fellowship hall like we had originally planned. Sorry about that. I just remember that right in the middle of, of preaching. Someone shared that with me before the sermon. So anyway, most of you know that we had our 10th child, Hudson Taylor, at the end of October. So far, he has been a great baby. But even, and by great baby, it doesn't mean he doesn't cry a whole lot, right? That's generally how we judge. What else are you going to judge? I mean, besides, well, maybe how much they sleep, I suppose. And so in that respect, he's been sleeping well, not crying a lot. But if he did, that wouldn't bother us, because what do we expect of babies and infants? Yeah, that they're, that they're going to cry. We expect them to weep. We understand, there's no joke in this, that God has created men and women differently, and women tending to be more sensitive than men. We are not surprised when women cry. But who do we generally not expect to cry? Men. We do not typically expect men to cry, or at least not as, as much as babies or women. And so because of that, when men cry, there can be something particularly dramatic or even moving about that. The Bible contains some vivid descriptions of men crying, and I will share just a few that stand out to me. One of them occurred when David and his men were staying at Ziklag. David had fled to live with the Philistines to get And at one point when David and his men were out fighting, the Amalekites came to Ziklag attacked the city, kidnapped all of David's men, David's and David's men's wives and children. 1 Samuel 30, verse 3, it says, When David and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire, and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. 
Then David and the people who were with him, listen to this, they raised their voices and they wept until they had no more strength to weep. Now, that tells you that this is not typical weeping. Typical weeping is not going to sap all of your strength like this weeping did. David and his men wept, or probably more like sobbed, or even wailed until they were completely exhausted. I think this is even more moving when you consider the type of men that these were. These were, let's say, men's men. They were hardened by war. They were used to killing other men with swords or perhaps even their own hands uh, close enough that they could see in those men's faces. These included David's mighty men whose heroics were so great that they have an entire passage committed to the things that they were able to do militarily or physically. These are men who had been hardened by war, by hunger, by thirst, by fighting, by fear of death. But until this moment, there's no record of anything like this happening where they weep until they're completely exhausted. But now they weep like this because they know their wives and children were captured by some of the wickedest people in history, the Amalekites. If there was ever a group that you would want to keep as far from your family as possible, it would be them. If you remember, they were so evil that God commanded Saul to exterminate them. And because there's always consequences for disobedience, because Saul failed to exterminate them, demonstrating that the Amalekites did not repent at that judgment, but continued their wicked ways, they then had enough Amalekites left to attack Ziklag, raise the city, kidnap the women and children. Another example that stood out to me was when Esau received the news that he would receive no blessing. You remember that account? It's surprising how shocking it was because he should have known that he had traded it away, but like many decisions we make in life, we don't fathom the consequences until we experience them. Genesis 27, 34, it says, As soon as Esau heard the words of his father, he cried out, listen to this, with an exceedingly great and bitter cry. And he said to his father, Bless me, even me also, O my father. Have you but one blessing, my father? Bless me, even me also, O my father. And Esau lifted up his voice and wept. So Esau is another man's man. How do you know when you're a man's man? I guess when you're born hairy, like he was, right? You know, you're definitely talking about a man's man when you're a baby that's hairy, like he was. And even he sat here weeping when he learned that he wasn't going to have any birthright. He wept loudly. It is sad picturing this grown man sobbing, begging for his father to give him something, anything. I also thought about Job's friends because they wept not for themselves or anything they were experiencing, but for their friend. I know Job's friends received considerable criticism. If you want to tell someone that they were a bad friend, you could tell them that they were like Job's friends. But before they opened their mouths, they were good enough friends that they had coordinated in the ancient world prior to any way to communicate with each other, to go probably some distance to be with Job, and then they sat there and listened to this. When they saw him, Job 2.12, from a distance, they did not recognize him. And they raised their voices, and they wept. They tore their clothes. They sprinkled dust on their heads toward heaven. They wept loudly for their friend because his trials had it was, occurred when they saw him. His trials his, had left Job unrecognizable to them. And so they were so moved by what they witnessed 
that they respond this way. Now, I could give you more examples. It's not intended to be an exhaustive list, but I want to share just one more with you. There's a man in Scripture who has the unique distinction of being associated with weeping. It's part of the title we give him. What individual am I talking about? Jeremiah, the weeping prophet. And this brings us to lesson one. Jeremiah's weeping is a type of Jesus's weeping. Jeremiah's weeping is a type of Jesus's weeping. Matthew 16, 13, Jesus asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others, Jeremiah. So I want to briefly talk about these guesses because they give us a unique insight into how people viewed Jesus during his earthly ministry. So first, some people said that Jesus was John the Baptist. Now, John 10.41 tells us that John never performed any miracles. And so people did not think that John and Jesus were the same person because of the miracles that were performed. More than likely, they thought Jesus and John were the same because of the similar preaching. They both preached repentance. They both preached truth regardless of how well or how poorly we might say it would be received. They both confronted the religious leaders. Second, they guessed Elijah. There, there are at least four reasons that people could have guessed this prophet. First, Elijah and Jesus were famous miracle workers. Second, Elijah and Jesus were known for very bold, uncompromising preaching. Third, Elijah went up to heaven at the end of his earthly life in a whirlwind without dying, which then made it easier for people to believe that he could have returned in their day. But fourth, and most significantly, there was an Old Testament prophecy that Elijah would appear again. Malachi 4.5, Behold, I'll send Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Now, Malachi 4.5 is the second-to-last verse of the Old Testament, which is to, to say it's the second-to-last verse before God stops talking for 400 years, or which is to say it's the second-to-last verse before the canon was closed until John the Baptist came on the scene. And so you can suspect that this verse is going to receive considerable attention, that people would be familiar with it. They would look forward to this day when Elijah returns. The verse is prophesying of Elijah being one of the witnesses in Revelation 11. But the people in Jesus' day who would not have Revelation 11 wouldn't know that, and so Elijah would be a logical guess for Jesus, or Jesus would be a logical guess for Elijah, you might say. And then the third person they named was Jeremiah. So we know Jeremiah resembles Jesus. And generally, when we talk about the typology between them, we say that they both suffered, they were both betrayed, they were both rejected. The suffering they experienced was at the hands of their brethren that they loved, that they were trying to win to repentance or to, to the Lord. But the problem is, when the Jews said that they thought Jesus was Jeremiah, Jesus had not expect, experienced that rejection and betrayal and suffering at that point. It was still ahead of him. That was toward the end of his earthly ministry. And so we can't say that the people said Jeremiah was Jesus because of the betrayal, rejection, and suffering because that hadn't happened yet. So why did they think that they were the same person? Well, more than likely, it was because of the sorrow of their lives 
Jeremiah is the author of Lamentations, and Jesus, Ed just read Isaiah 53 during the communion devotion, Jesus was a man of what? Man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And so like Jeremiah, Jesus was known for his sensitivity, his tenderheartedness. Nine times in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we read about Jesus' compassion. Just using Matthew's Gospel, Matthew 9, 36, when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were helpless like sheep without a shepherd, Matthew 14, 14. When Jesus saw a great crowd, he had compassion on them, healed their sick. Matthew 15, 32, Jesus said, I have compassion on the crowd because they've been with me three days and have nothing to eat. So we see that Jesus was deeply compassionate. But I don't think that we see that compassion for people any better than when he weeps over Jerusalem. Now, you know that I like types and shadows, and this lesson originally read that Jeremiah is a type of Jesus. But I changed it to say that Jeremiah's weeping over Jerusalem is a type of Jesus's weeping over Jerusalem. Because as I examined the typology between Jeremiah and Jesus, it became clear that it's not just Jeremiah serving as a type of Christ, but even, even the weeping that Jeremiah did over Jerusalem serves as a type or prefigures or foreshadows Jesus' weeping over Jerusalem. Jeremiah 9.1. Jeremiah says, Oh, that my head were waters and my eyes a fountain of tears, that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. So Jeremiah said he wept for the Jews who would be slaughtered. He's talking specifically about Babylon coming. And follow me on this. Jeremiah was talking specifically about weeping, about Babylon coming, sieging Jerusalem, breaking into the city, destroying the city, destroying the temple, slaughtering countless Jews, and taking many other Jews into captivity. Now, when I just describe that, what else does that sound like? That sounds like what happened in Jeremiah's day, and it also sounds like what was going to happen in 70 AD, 40 years after the triumphal entry. So hold on to that. So let me illustrate this by describing someone and then asking you who I'm describing. Jerusalem's going to be sieged. It's going to be broken into. The temple's going to be destroyed. Hundreds of thousands of Jews will be slaughtered. Thousands more will be taken captive. There's a man who sees this prophecy of this happening, and he weeps. Who am I talking about? Well, I could be talking about Jesus. I could be talking about Jeremiah. I could be talking about Jesus, the weeping Savior, as he thought about what would happen to Jerusalem at the hands of the Romans in 70 AD. Or I could be talking about Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, as he thought about what would happen to the Jerusalem and the Jews at the hands of the Babylonians around 600 BC. So I've told you before that many events in the Old Testament prefigure or foreshadow New Testament events or realities. And I've become convinced that when Babylon attacked, sieged, destroyed Jerusalem, the temple in Jeremiah's day, it prefigures or foreshadows the same thing happening under the Romans in 70 AD. And with that, go ahead and turn to Luke 19, if you're not already there. We'll start at verse 37 for context. These verses we've already covered, so I'll go through them quickly. 
We're jumping into the middle of the triumphal entry. Verse 37, it says, As Jesus was drawing near, he's already on the way down the Mount of Olives. The whole multitude of his disciples begins to rejoice. And this is not the 12 disciples. This is the crowds probably numbering in the thousands. If Jesus could feed 5,000, then we can suspect that for the coronation, for the triumphal entry, there would be considerably more than that probably present. So I would guess tens of thousands here who are celebrating this moment, rejoicing, praising God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. And they said, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. So they're rejoicing, they're praising God with loud voices. No other celebration like this in the gospels, maybe no other celebration in scripture would rival what we're reading here. Because remember previously, every time a response like this was anticipated, Jesus deflected it. My time has not yet come. They came to make him king, he escapes. My time has not yet come, my time has not yet come. And then in John 12, the hour has come, my time has come. And this was the time for him to receive the worship and praise. The response was so staggering, the religious leaders could not handle it. In verse 39, some of the Pharisees in the crowd, they said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he said, I tell you, if these were silent, these disciples, the very stones would cry out. And so if the people weren't going to be making any noise, then creation itself was going to respond to welcome the king of kings into Jerusalem. All the gospels record Jesus' triumphal entry, but Luke records something completely shocking that is not in the other gospels. Look with me at verse 41. When Jesus drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. Now, as I've told you many times before, you will get much more from your Bible reading if you picture in your mind's eye what you're studying. When events are described, to try to envision them will allow you to better understand what you're reading, but will also allow your, your reading to be more fruitful for you. And this is one of those moments that you really need to think about to understand how dramatic it was. You've got this crowd that's shouting, worshiping, rejoicing, celebrating, waving palm branches, throwing clothes down on the ground, or the palm branches down, throwing clothes on the donkey. Could not have asked for a better response. And then in the midst of that crowd is a weeping king. And it makes no sense. It is the exact opposite of what we would expect to read. So the moment that we would expect to be filled with joy is instead filled with this intense sadness. Now this, uh, to understand this response was the point of last Sunday's sermon. So if you'd like to understand better why there was such a shocking response from Christ after such what appears to be a warm celebration from the Jews, I'd encourage you to go back to listen to last Sunday's sermon. So Jesus's behavior is so shocking because contrary to what we would expect, he knew that they were rejecting him. The Jews want to be saved from Rome. Jesus is going to save them. I think as Ed also said in his communion devotion from the true and greater enemy we face, sin and death. It looks like they're accepting Jesus, but they are rejecting him. They've already rejected him in their hearts. They haven't rejected him outwardly, but they will in five days, right? When they learn that he's not coming into Jerusalem to save them from Rome. When they realize he's coming into Jerusalem to be the Passover lamb versus the Moses figure 
or the Solomonic figure or the Davidic figure. He's not delivering them from Rome like David delivered from the Philistines or Moses delivered from the Egyptians. Instead, he's coming to die for their sins. And when they recognize that he will not be the king that they expect, they call for his crucifixion. And Jesus knows this. He anticipates this reception or let's say rejection would be a better word. And because they completely misunderstood Jesus' first coming, look what he says to them at the end of verse 44. He says, you did not know the time of your visitation. That's another way of saying that they did not understand Jesus' first coming. When he says, you didn't understand the time of your visitation, he means, you did not understand my first coming, which is a staggering statement, because when you look at the crowd's response, it looks like they completely understood his first coming, but they did not love Christ. They hated Christ. They might not have looked like they hated him yet, but they will momentarily. I mean, how much do you have to despise someone to call out for their crucifixion? How much would you have to despise someone to say that we want Caesar to be our king? Instead, or let me say it like this. How much would you have to despise someone to request that who be released instead of him? Barabbas. They wanted a violent, horrible, wicked criminal in their midst versus having Jesus in their midst. That's how much they despised him. And Jesus knew that was coming. And so he says, you did not understand the time of your visitation. And this is why he weeps. Look at 1942. Now we'll go through these verses. Luke 19:42 to see what Jesus says to them. He says, would that you, even you had known on this day, and this refers to the day prophesied by Daniel, 70 weeks, I don't have time to go into it in the sermon. I thought about doing it during Sunday school, perhaps, because Daniel's 70 weeks prophesy to the day that Jesus made his triumphal entry. I mean, this is why you see things like, how do the wise men know? How do the wise men know to go to look for Jesus's birth? Because they were familiar with this prophecy. So the Jews should have known that this was the king that they were receiving. So he says, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. The word Salem, because he mentions Jerusalem in a moment, what does the word Salem, it's related to the word shalom, mean? Peace, right? So there's a play on words here. Jesus is talking about Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city of peace, not experiencing peace. That's what he says here. The city whose name means peace would not experience peace. And Jesus said they didn't know what would make for their peace. It would have meant peace for them if they received him as their Messiah. But because they're going to reject him, they're rejecting the peace that he could have brought. And this brings us to lesson two. The Jews rejected peace when they rejected the Prince of Peace. The Jews rejected peace when they rejected the Prince of Peace. Now, you don't have to turn anywhere else, but just listen to these verses, probably familiar to many of you. Matthew 27, 24. When Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, and even when it says that, when it says, when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, what was he trying to gain? Jesus' release. You almost wouldn't believe it if it wasn't written here. When it says Pilate wasn't getting what he wanted, he wasn't getting Jesus released. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing or not getting Jesus released, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water, washed his hands before the crowd, and he said, I'm innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. Now listen to what the Jews said. 
Matthew 27, 25, the next verse. His, the people answered, his blood be on us and on our children. And I just want to ask you, have the Jews gotten what they requested here? Absolutely. The Jews said, we reject him, crucify him, give us Caesar, give us Barabbas. Don't even put king of the Jews on the cross. Give us anything but him and let his blood, because Pilate was afraid it would be on him, we'll take it. Let his blood be on us, and not just let his blood be on us, go ahead and let his blood be on our children as well. And that is exactly what the Jews have gotten for the last 2,000 years. Listen to these two verses, some which have received more attention recently. I know that um, Pastor Nathan has shared them during our Sunday morning prayer time. We have encouraged you to be praying for the peace of Jerusalem. It seems to me that this is a command that's given to us. Psalm 122, Verse 6, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they, referring to the Jews, be secure who love you. Peace be within your walls and security within your towers. The opposite of these verses has happened. And does it seem providential or fitting for us to be reading this in light of the Israeli-Hamas conflict happening? I mean, you can't go one day without seeing more articles or news about the Jews who were being slaughtered and the horrific events that are happening over there in Israel. And so when the Jews said this, let his blood be on us, they got exactly what they wanted. Look at Luke 9. Now that's looking forward 2,000 years, right? But what, what Jesus does is he looks forward 40 years. Let's say Jesus is crucified around 30 AD. He looks forward 40 years to 70 AD. Look at Luke 19, 43, as Jesus describes what's going to happen 40 years after they reject him. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you. They'll surround you, hem you in on every side. They're going to, and this is the they or the enemies or the Romans, they're going to tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. Notice that, you and your children within you. Pregnant mothers are going to be slaughtered. They will not leave one stone upon another in you. And we already read the rest of the verse, so you can stop here. So this is a prophecy of Rome's successful siege of Jerusalem, which I believe was foreshadowed or prefigured in Jesus' day by the Babylonians. Under Titus in 70 AD, I mean Rome, not Babylon under Titus, but Rome under Titus. Sieges were horrible experiences. All the supplies would be cut off to the city, which would then inevitably lead to starvation and death which would inevitably lead to disease spreading, especially as they were unable to dispose of the bodies, which would lead to further death, further disease, conditions that became so unbearable that people finally reached the point they said, we would rather surrender ourselves to the enemy than have to continue living one more day in this city. So when Jesus said that the Romans would tear you down, you and your children, he's referring to the pregnant mothers being killed. Jesus said that the Romans were going to hem the Jews in on every side, and that's exactly what happened. The siege prevented any of the Jews from escaping. One commentator I read, William Hendrickson, he said many of the Jews who tried to flee were crucified. The siege lasted for 143 days. After that, the Romans killed 600,000 Jews. They took thousands more captive to be sold in Egypt or to be used as sport for the lions in the amphitheaters. Now, if you never heard of uh, Josephus before, Josephus is the great Jewish historian, 
And one of the reasons that his writing has so much credibility is he's not a Christian. So you read Christian's writings and you have this nagging concern that the writing is going to be bent in favor of Christianity. But when you can take a secularist like Josephus and look at his historical writings, it has more credibility. And this is what he said in the Wars of the Jews about this siege. All hope of escaping was now cut off from the Jews, together with their liberty of going out of the city. Then did the famine widen its progress and devour the people by whole houses and families, the upper rooms of women and infants that were dying by famine, the lanes of the city were full of the dead bodies of the elderly, the children also. The young men wandered about the marketplaces like shadows, all swelled with the famine, and they fell down wheresoever their misery seized them. Now, I could go on actually cut a, an amount of the quote from Josephus out of my sermon because Katie thought that it was just too graphic and unnecessary. But needless to say, the conditions of the siege were simply horrific. Jesus said they were not going to leave one stone upon another. And that refers to the Romans destroying the town. What was left? One wall. And what do we call that today? We call that the weeping wall or wailing wall. One more quote from Josephus from a different book of his, The History of the Jewish War, just regarding the destruction of the city versus the destruction of the people. He said the Roman emperor ordered the entire city and the temple to be razed to the ground, leaving only the loftiest of the towers, the portion of the wall enclosing the city on the west, all the rest of the wall that surrounded the city was so completely razed to the ground as to leave future visitors to the spot no reason to believe that the city had ever even been inhabited. That's how destroyed it was. The Romans built the city of Alia, capital, Capitolina, on the site of Jerusalem's ruins. And for many years, the Romans would not even allow the Jews to enter except on one day per year, the anniversary of the destruction of the temple when they could come and mourn bitterly. And one other thing that made this particularly horrific, not remotely coincidental, the Romans did this on Passover. Now, if you're familiar with the Jewish calendar, you know the Passover is one of the three holy trips or one of the three feasts that the Jews were required to make to Jerusalem and specifically to the temple to, desert, to observe. And so the Romans chose to do this on Passover because then not only would they be slaughtering the Jews who were in Jerusalem, they would also be slaughtering all of those Jews who were visiting the city for the occasion. Now, I share this speculatively, but because Jesus was crucified on Passover, he's our Passover lamb, and because this siege took place on Passover, it's very likely that there are some Jews or even many Jews who would look back, remember Jesus's words that he said here only five days before Passover, five days before they call out for his crucifixion, and make the connection that this happened because they rejected him. Or they would remember that Jesus made this prophecy right before Passover that this would happen so that when it did happen on Passover in 70 AD, they would remember that they were experiencing the consequences of rejecting their Messiah. And so the tragedy of this, the Jews, if you just follow me on this, had spent centuries, or you could even say millenniums, waiting for their Messiah to come. 
There was no day that the Jews looked forward to more than their Messiah coming. It was the fulfillment of all prophetic expectation. It's going to be the greatest moment in their history. It should have brought unimaginable joy. And instead, it is this judgment and suffering. And so this is why Jesus wept over Jerusalem. Now, because of the way it's described, Jesus is weeping, this is what I think happened. It says, as he approached Jerusalem. So remember, he's making the triumphal entry from Bethphage into Jerusalem on the donkey. He was not within sight of the city at first. But it says, when he came within sight of the city, when he could observe, I suspect, all of these peaceful dwellings, and he knew that these people were going to be killed, pregnant women and children slaughtered. He knew Jerusalem's going to become this smoldering, hideous ruin, thousands upon thousands of the inhabitants executed in gruesome ways, other Jews taken captive. And to be honest with you, death was probably a better experience for some of the Jews than remaining captive, at least if they were believing Jews, which sadly many of them weren't. So Jesus could see all this. It's heartbreaking to him. And this brings us to lesson three. Jesus wept over Jerusalem because of the coming judgment. Jesus wept over Jerusalem because of the coming judgment, the 70 AD judgment. So we understand that there are different ways to weep. Or let me say this. We understand there are different ways to cry. And that's why we have so many synonymous words. Or that's why we have so many words that describe crying, sobbing, whimpering, wailing, bawling. To capture the different ways that people would weep, the Greek language had different words for crying or weeping. Let me first show you the way Jesus didn't weep by showing you the word cry used elsewhere and then show you the way that Jesus did weep. So I've told you before that a basic rule of Bible interpretation is that if you're ever attempting to understand a word, look at that word's use elsewhere in Scripture. And if you can look at that word's use by the same author or in the same book, because God used human authors, their personalities, and so authors had a certain flavor to their writing, and so it made sense that if you see a word used by an author in one place, he's probably using the word the same way elsewhere. So I'm just going to show you one of the words for crying in Luke's gospel, and I'll show you the kind of weeping Jesus did. Look at Luke 18:7. One chapter to the left, Luke 18:7. So one word for weep or for cry is ba'o. Ba'a'o, and I'll show you two places this word is used. Luke 18, 7. Will God, will not God give justice to his elect who cry? This is Ba'a'o to him day and night. Will he delay long over them? Look a little later in the chapter, Luke 18, 38. This is blind Bartimaeus. Luke 18, 38. He's on the side of the road. And Bartimaeus has the most dramatic moment of his life 
He has spent countless days on the side of this road in his blindness, wanting any sort of help, and he hears the commotion, and something that he must have never imagined actually happened. The Messiah, who he's heard of his miracles, is walking down the road and will pass in front of him. So you can only imagine how loudly Bartimaeus is going to cry out to Jesus. In Luke 18, 38, it says, he cried out, and I can only imagine what it was like, as loudly as he could. This is Ba'o. He's crying out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Now, when Jesus weeps over Jerusalem, here's what you need to know. He's not crying out like the widow to the persistent judge, and he is not crying out like Bartimaeus to Jesus. The word used in Luke 19.41 to describe Jesus weeping over Jerusalem, it's the Greek word klio, klio. And I'll show you two places it's used. Turn to Luke 22. So Peter's denials are in verses 54 through 60. Look with me at verse 61. Luke 20, 22, 61. The Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter, and this is after Jesus more than likely had been beaten, abused somewhat. He makes eye contact with Peter. Peter remembers the saying of the Lord and how he had said to him that before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And then Luke twenty-two sixty-two. Peter went out and he wept bitterly. That's klio. That is the same word for Jesus' weeping over Jerusalem. And to better communicate it, in the English language, it adds the word bitterly. He's weeping bitterly. Jesus wept over Jerusalem with the same bitterness that Peter wept over his denials. It doesn't mean that Jesus did something wrong like Peter did something wrong. It simply means that Jesus experienced similar grief over the slaughter that he knew was coming to the Jews that Peter experienced over denying Christ. Look one chapter to the right at Luke 23, 26. Jesus is on his way to the cross. Luke 23, 26, they led him away. They seized one Simon of Cyrene who was coming in from the country and they laid the cross on Simon to carry it behind Jesus because Jesus was too tired to do so after having been scourged and beaten so much, it's understandable. Verse 27, and there followed him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. So not all of the Jews were unbelieving. Not all of the Jews were calling out for Christ's crucifixion. Some of the Jews were lamenting, in particular these women, mourning over what they see happening to the Lord that they love. And then in verse 28, it says, Turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep, and this is Clio for me, but weep for yourselves, and for your children. Now, few things in all of human history 
would be, or any things in all of human history, would be as dramatic as witnessing Jesus going to the cross, carrying his cross, and then at some point being even too exhausted to do so, so someone else has to carry it for him, and he essentially almost limps to Calvary. I think most of us probably would not even have the words to describe what it would be like to witness this event. Now, these women, they were incredibly grieved over seeing their Savior suffer this way. Now, Jesus, here's what's interesting to me, too exhausted to carry his cross, yet was still willing to expend the energy to tell these women that they should not be weeping for him, but they should be weeping for themselves and for their children. And why is that? Again, he's looking to 70 AD. He's talking about the judgment coming. And he says, as horrible as this is for me, you need to be more concerned about Jerusalem and what's happening when Rome comes. The point is the way that they were weeping over Jesus carrying his cross, and I'm not sure that there would be a more dramatic event to witness, is like the weeping that Jesus did over Jerusalem. Incredible, unimaginable grief is what our Lord experienced at the thought of this judgment that was coming to Rome. Now, I know this has not been a particularly encouraging sermon. We go verse by verse, so we deal with the verses that we reach, and this is what we reached. There's not a lot of encouragement in them. I do want to leave you with some encouragement, though. I was thinking about heaven and hell, and interestingly, heaven and hell are both associated with weeping. When Jesus described hell, he said that it's what? A place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So hell seems to be a place of constant weeping. I'm assuming weeping because of the suffering that's experienced, but also weeping because of the regret. And a regret, a regret that goes on for eternity. No way to change your circumstances. Knowing that what you're experiencing at this moment is what you will experience eternally. I cannot imagine the regret, or I cannot imagine the weeping that that would cause. And so when Jesus describes hell, he talks about the weeping that takes place there. When God describes heaven, we're repeatedly told that it's a place where we will not weep, even told that our tears will be wiped away. Isaiah 25, 8, the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, Repeated Revelation 7, 17, God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Revelation 21, 4, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor weeping, nor pain anymore. Now, people, they commonly quote this verse, and I'm fine with this, it's, it's, tr it's true, it's a beautiful reality of this verse. I'm not remotely criticizing people quoting this verse for this reason that there will be no more suffering. People love to mention this verse and say, heaven is going to be a place where there is no more suffering. And that is a beautiful truth to encourage us from this verse. But there's another beautiful aspect to this verse that I think gets overlooked 
And it's contained in the phrase, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Have you ever wiped someone's tears away? It's intimate. There must be a closeness to be comfortable leaning in to someone's life at one of their perhaps darkest moments and wiping away the tears from their eyes. Or have you ever had someone wipe away your tears when you were weeping? I suspect it was someone you were close with. (laughs) Because if it was someone you were not close with, when they reached in, you would have recoiled from them. Let me illustrate it this way. Over the years, I taught elementary school, and I saw students cry numerous times. I only taught fourth, taught third grade one, one year, but mostly I taught fourth and fifth grade. And sometimes students cried because they got hurt on the playground. Sometimes students cried because their feelings got hurt by cruel things other students said. Sometimes students cried because they got poor grades on their report cards. And sometimes students cried because they, the punishment that they received for something that they did. I think I had good relationships with my students. I could probably count on one hand the number of students that I ever felt comfortable enough to lean in and to wipe the tears away from their eyes. But my point is, that seems to be the closeness or the intimacy with which we will dwell with our Savior for all eternity. And that is beautiful to me. That is truly beautiful to me. That our faith will become sight, but not only will we see Christ, we will enjoy such a close and intimate relationship with him that he would be willing to or able to lean in and wipe the tears from our eyes. And so it seems to me that we're left with a choice. And give me your attention, because I want to be absolutely clear about this. We're all given this choice. We can spend eternity in hell where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Or we can spend eternity in heaven where the Lord himself would wipe away our tears. To spend eternity in heaven requires repentance, repenting of our sins, and believing that Jesus died for them. To be saved requires recognizing you can't save yourself. To be saved requires acknowledging that you were a sinner and that there are no works that you could do that would allow you to be good enough to go to heaven. And that you can, it was interesting, this gentleman contacted me and he wanted to, he wanted to interview me. And I went to look up his ministry and he's a Catholic. And I said, well, you might not want to interview me because I came out of the Catholic church, God saved me from it. And he said, oh, you'd be a perfect person for me to, to interview. I interview everyone. I interview Satanists. And I was like, are you kind of saying I'm a Satanist here? Like, but, but anyway, <laughs> I, why, why is that the first group you mentioned when, you, when I talk about coming out of the Catholic Church? So we have, we have this interview, and I'll probably share it like I share any interviews I do, so if it might encourage any of you. But he, was, he had a great attitude. I really appreciated this gentleman. And I complimented him. I applauded his, his receptiveness and what seemed to be humility to allow me to share very openly about my conversion and the work that God did in my life and delivering me from Catholicism. But 
there's a point at the end where he just started sharing the gospel, but it wasn't the gospel. <laughs> it was about works and being good enough. And being saved requires disbelieving that lie and recognizing that we can't be good enough and we can only be saved by the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross and clinging to that, crying out to Christ to be saved by his mercy. Should you do that, then you can look forward to all of your tears being wiped away. Should you choose to do that or trust in your own selfishness or trust in your own righteousness, then you could possibly look forward to an eternity of weeping and gnashing of teeth. If you have any questions or if I can pray for you in any way, I will be up front after service, especially any questions about anything I shared at the end, and I would consider it a privilege to speak with you. Father, we thank you so much for your son, that he was willing to die on this cross in our place, and I think that the weeping we see him do over Jerusalem is a window into his heart or your heart regarding the judgment. I mean, I can only imagine that if there would be that sort of compassion toward a city being slaughtered, what sort of compassion there would be regarding people spending eternity in hell, Lord. And so I would pray that if there be anyone who is in this room listening to me at this time looking forward to that eternity, that you would grant them repentance and faith in Christ, that they would be saved, Lord, that they would look to your son and cry out to him for mercy, that he would be their substitute. We do thank you that he was willing to die in our place, and we pray all these things in his name. Amen.